Well, so far we've had a, a, a number of theologies uh, uh, expressed here. When I first found Unitarian Universalism, I, I, was, uh, I was going to an Amnesty International um, startup meeting in the basement of a church that was just two blocks away from where I'd lived for the last couple years and been going to university, um, went through nursing school, had served as a nurse, and was going off to um, a little place in Alaska. And, and um, I picked up some pamphlets at the, that church, and I read about Unitarian Universalism, and I thought, oh my goodness, these people give me the space to believe or not believe what I feel in my heart is true. Here are a bunch of pagans and theists and atheists, and oh my goodness, they have the chutzpah to call themselves a church. These are my people. I was blessed and Believe me, I, I don't honestly believe in miracles, but it was a miracle that there was a Unitarian Universalist fellowship in a little town, town of 6,500 people in Alaska, where I moved. So we've go gone from, from all kinds of theologies. Now we are going to talk about different kinds of atheism. Um, uh, Sherwin uh, Wine talks about this in one of his books, but it's quoted in... Um, a book by Greg, Greg Epstein, uh, a book called Good Without God. What a billion non-religious people do believe. And uh, it, it shows that, that um, you don't have to be a theologian to count how many angels or non-angels are on the head of a pin. So there are different kinds of atheism. Sherwin writes, um, the most popular kind is ontological atheism, a firm denial that there is any creator or manager of the universe. So ontological. There is ethical atheism, a firm conviction that even if there is a creator manager of the world, he or she does not run things in accordance with the human moral agenda, rewarding the good and punishing the wicked. There is existential atheism, a nervier assertion that even if there is a god, he, she, it, has no authority to be the boss of my life. Sounds like a five-year-old. Okay, um, seven-year-old, yeah. There is agnostic atheism, a cautious denial that claims that God's existence can be neither proved nor disproved. This type of atheist ends up with a behavior no different from the ontological atheist. There is agnostic atheism, another cautious denial, which claims that the word God is so confusing that it is meaningless. This belief, again, translates into the same behavior as that first kind of atheist. There is pragmatic atheism, which regards God as irrelevant to ethical and successful living and which views all discussions about God as a waste of time. But, but, Greg Epstein concludes in his book, Good Without God, none of these terms has anything to do with what we do believe which leads us to ask, what is an atheist doing in a pew? And you actually honestly have pews here. What is an atheist doing sitting in a pew? Pews come in churches, they come in mosques and temples, and those buildings come with religion. And religion, well, well religion has been the source of some epic missteps which missteps is a small word to use for it, witch hunts, the Inquisition, crusades, jihads in the worst, most inaccurate sense of the word jihad, persecution um, of Muslims, of Christians as infidels, persecution of Jews because they killed Christ, dismissal of Buddhists or Hindus for belief in no gods or too many gods. Um, what 
is an atheist doing sitting in that pew? Pews come with hierarchies, with oftentimes with ministers or priests, deacons, monsignors, bishops, archbishops, popes, monks, um, imams, rabbis, people who can order you around, people who tell you what is right and what is totally wrong. Religion comes with creeds and dogmas and doctrines, all sorts of things that you are expected to believe in heaven, in hell, in miracles, in angels, in original sin, woman responsible for the fall of man or humankind. Religions come with certain worldviews, certain ideas. We are often, we are right and you are wrong. In the United States, we're told by the religious right, the country is going to hell in a handbasket because people believe in evolution or people believe in global climate change or because we read the liberal media and we are bamboozled by their perspective. Uh, the country is going to hell in a handbasket because women and men are using contraceptives. Women are asking, demanding reproductive justice and equity for themselves. Kids are getting educated about the practicalities and nuances and responsibilities of sex. Unmarried people are having sex. You know, people of the same gender are having sex. They're not only having sexual intercourse, they're getting married. <sighs> These changes are all due to the godless secular humanists out there on the front lines of change oftentimes. Some of them at this very moment sitting in the pew right next to you. What is a godless secular humanist doing sitting in a pew? Churches and temples and mosques may hold very, very different worldviews from your average, if you can call them average, atheist or non-theist. Churches and organized religions can be vicious, intolerant, self-righteous, filled with hypocrisy and paranoia, a bastion of patriarchy, homophobic, anti-science, the realm of flatlanders. Oh my goodness, am I bad-mouthing them. Uh, but it's true. Some churches can be like that. Some religions can be like that. Filled with folks who are so certain about God, about who God is and what God looks like. He's certainly not some blazing electron plasma divine being. We are created in his image, so God must be sentient meat, just like his creation. God must have that big toe, although I must say a word for that young woman. She is a scientist. She wants proof to see exactly what God looks like and what God has. She wants to see it with her eyes. She's not just going to believe it, just because you said so. And oftentimes those ultra-religious folks are equally certain they know what it is God wants us all to do. So what are we doing here? What's an agnostic, a free thinker, an ethical rationalist doing in a pew? Well, atheism in its many iterations has a long history. Even in antiquity, there are those who disbelieved in gods. They were labeled atheist. With the rise of science, the number of people who denied belief in the supernatural, the, the literalness of the Bible, those numbers rose. They rose slowly. But for centuries, it was dangerous to say you questioned the 
orthodox certainties about God or gods and creed and dogma, being questioning or nonconformist, being heterodox, not in accordance with established theological beliefs, was heretical. So whether you're sitting in this pew and you call yourself uh, a Buddhist or a theist or a Christian or an atheist or a person who follows the Tao or a, natural, a naturalist humanist, um, you're all considered heretical. Heresy means choosing. Heresy means choosing one's own beliefs. Being a heretic often could be a punishable offense, even a lethal punishment. Our, our uh, anti-Trinitarian um, forebear, Michael Cervatus, in 1553, I'm sorry, 570 years ago, was burned at the stake with his book. It was called Against the Trinity. He questioned the literal truthfulness of the Trinity. His book strapped to his thigh. In our own history, Universalist minister Abner Neeland was accused of atheism in the 1830s. Now, Neeland preached in several parishes, most of them um, on the East Coast and, and heading inland, and wrote pamphlets about his beliefs, and his beliefs became increasingly unorthodox. Neeland believed that the scriptures came out of human experience rather than divine revelation. He believed in no period of punishment after death, like he was a universalist, no, no, God, no hell for everyone because you weren't in the right religion. He advocated the practice of birth control and spoke for women's rights. This was 1830s. He spoke for race, racial equality. He insisted on free thought and the right of conscience. He believed that people's concept of God was a figment of their imagination, that the story of Jesus was a fable, that miracles did not happen, and that there is no eternal life. Now, some of us, of course, believe that there are different concepts of, of God, and there, there are stories, or there are important lessons and fables, but Abner Neeland's beliefs at that time were considered blasphemous. They were uttered about God against God and sacred beliefs. They were irreverent and profane, and Abner Neeland holds the distinction of being the last person in the United States to be convicted and imprisoned for blasphemy. In 1832, he served 60 day days in jail. After that, he, he traveled to Ohio and, and uh, formed a commune there, gave up the ministry. There wasn't space for him to speak his own truths. Now, blasphemy, speaking about God or sacred beliefs in an irreverent manner, about half of European countries still have blasphemy laws on the books. They're rarely enforced. Outside the Western world, laws against and punishment for blasphemy are not unusual. And so we remember the um, 1989 fatwa against author Salman Rushdie. And we remember the 2011 bombing of... Charlie Hebdo, the French satirical magazine, and we remember more recent bombings of mosques and temples in this country and in around the world. Now, uh, 
the latest information I could get is in our congregations, about 20% of Unitarian Universalists say that God is an irrelevant concept and that the central focus of religion should be human knowledge and values. Um, in that respect, the little girl in Babel was, was a good questioning person um, who could question about what God really was, what God really looked like. Another 2% of UUs say that God is a concept that may be actually harmful to worldwide religions. And indeed, back in the late 1960s, I saw in, in Newsweek, there was a report that to many mainstream Christians, Unitarians are largely atheistic intellectuals who can't kick the habit of going to church. <laughs> and, and, and certainly in the 60s and the 70s, you were, you were supposed to be able to list a church and a religion on your child's uh, form for entering um, uh, school, for when you went to the hospital. So which of these priests or ministers or rabbis did you want to visit them, visit you? So atheism is an appropriate topic for religious discussion among us. Uh, and religion, I use that in the, the broad term that I talked about, talking about the things that bind us together, the things that connect us to each other and to our world. The depth and the breadth of those connections is religion. Now, after the events of 911, um, a, a discussion about atheism arose, and it was called a new atheism. And, and the term new atheism was ah, coined by the American journalist Gary Wolf in 2006. Now, new atheists advocated that superstition, religion, and irrationalism should simply not be tolerated. Uh, now, the, the new atheism was marked by a, a number of books. Neuroscientist Sam Harris wrote The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. Um, he blamed the events of 911 on Islam while also criticizing Christianity and Judaism. Biologist Richard Dawkins wrote the, writes The God Delusion. The British essayist and journalist Christopher Hutchins pens God is not great, how religion poisons everything. Uh, this, this new atheism, when I read those books or parts of those books, it seems intolerant of ignorance, myth, and superstition. Okay. But new atheism often contends that tolerance of religion, any sort of religion, is misguided, wrong-headed, if not downright dangerous. New atheism believes in logic, reason, and the advancement of a naturalistic worldview. And, and, and I understand um, why folks are drawn to these books. We do believe in science. We are aware of the many ways religion has and continues to fail, to fall short of its ideals. But, but the new atheists kind of reveled in being caustic and oppositional. It's, you know, it sells books. Um, their stance is far, a far cry from another older doubter, the philosopher, poet, and author George Santayana. Um, who wrote mostly in the, the um, early and mid-20th century. Santayana was an agnostic and what he calls an aesthetic Catholic. Um, I, I, I resonate with that because I, I grew up in the Polish Roman Catholic tradition and I often call myself a smells and bells Unitarian Universalist. I like those candles and processions and music and the ritual. 
So Santayana was an aesthetic Catholic. He is reputed to have said, there is no God and Mary is his mother. So, yeah, the, the Unitarian Universalist minister Roger Bruin once started a sermon with these words, Unitarians think there is no God and, um, I'm sorry, Unitarians believe there is one God and we don't believe in him. <laughs> and of course, there is the Unitarian joke, um, Unitarians, we're the folks who believe in one God at most. Yeah. Unless you're a Buddhist and maybe, maybe um, meditate on a, a variety of gods and goddesses. So there's also always the, unless your spirituality takes you in a different direction. But what are these non-believers doing sitting in a pew? And, and there's lots of reasons. We, we come for serious conversation with a community who will listen to and accept our non-belief. We come to hone our ideas about what it is we should do, how it is we should be with one another, what it is we do believe in. Um, as French philosopher André Comte-Sponville writes in his little book of atheist spirituality, frankly, do you need to believe in God to be convinced that sincerity is preferable to, dis to dishonesty, courage to cowardice, generosity to egoism, gentleness and compassion to violence and cruelty? Do you need to believe in God to be convinced that justice is preferable to injustice, love to hate? Of course not. So a, a new series of books explore the possibilities and define what it is to be a spiritual skeptic or atheist. Robert Solomon in his book Spirituality for the Skeptic defines spirituality as the thoughtful love of life. He goes on to say that spirituality like philosophy comes to grips with the big picture and our need for a larger sense of our lives. Solomon argues that spirituality, like philosophy, involves those aspects of our lives that are not reducible to career strategies, to personal psychology, to civic responsibilities, or the fluctuation of our economic or romantic fortunes. Spirituality, like philosophy, involves those questions that have no ultimate answers, no matter how desperately our various doctrines and dogmas try to provide them. Questions like, why are we here? Why am I here? What was before we were? What was before I was? How am I to live? How are we to live with one another? Why is there disease, suffering, pain, death? Some of us take the artistic route to answer these questions. Some of us take the scientific route. Some of us take the religious, a-religious, whatever it in the world it's, I'm doing up here, Root. In the pew, we all, atheist, agnostic, theist, and other, we all come to think about our really important things. Philosophy and religion author Sam Keen, in the absence of God, in the absence of God, dwelling in the presence of the sacred, argues that no God is necessary for us to experience wonder or fascination at the, at the intricate workings of the natural world. 
No God is necessary for us to feel our absolute interdependence with the natural world and with our human community. No God is necessary for us to be compassionate, to say thank you early and awful, often, to feel humbled before the majesty of the night sky or the mysteries of the atom. No God is necessary for us to feel that we walk on holy ground. So whether you are a theist and ask, entertain all of these questions, whether you're an atheist and enter, you entertain all these questions. Coming to church, we are reminded of the holy, or of the whole, the healthy, the whole in our lives. We are reminded that a, a consumer society preys on our insecurity and our envy. We're reminded that we are descendants of the Big Bang, the great radiance, the, the beginnings of the cosmos, the creation, all made of stardust, power, and light. Keen's sort of spirituality is a way to re-enchant our everyday life. Many, many science writers, um, E.L. Wilson, who primarily studied ants, but I have a book out on, on the table in the foyer um, by E.L. Wilson, Ursula Goodenow, wonderful scientist, who then reflects on those underpinnings of her understanding of science. Stephen Jay Gould, they write of science and nature with reverence, a sense of awe, and the majesty of it all. We gather on a Sunday to figure out how to be the very best stardust we can be. We come to be reminded of this great gift of life, a, a gift we did not choose, but must learn to use with compassion and wisdom. We sing of morning, a, do not, a new dawn, a, a light of hope and peace and love. We sing of the spirit of life. We come for the intellectual stimulation. We come to raise doubts, uh, ask questions, confirm or refine our worldview. We come to remember the turning of the seasons, the, the holidays, the holy days that mark the years passing. Holocaust remembrance, spring, Easter. We come to voice our deepest concerns. We come to celebrate our important life passages. We come to mourn with one another, to acknowledge and emphasize and affirm the, the uniqueness of an individual and the sorrow we feel at their passing. We come for the companionship, a place where others know our name, part of our life story. Through health and sickness, love lost and found, triumph and disappointment, wonder and despair, we come, we come. We sit in the pews, we listen to whatever the minister is blathering about up here. We come to hear Margaret's music, beautiful music and the choir. We come to be encouraged. We come with our failures, our pain, our loss, we come with thanks and praise. We come to a place we are recognized and honored and welcomed for who we are and what we believe in. To stand for peace, to make change, 
to remember that we, we need not think alike to love alike. So may it ever be so. May we make it so. Blessed be, and amen.